And what I want us to talk about today is gospel clarity. <clears throat> I want to take you back to your childhood, or to some of you uh, earlier this week with your children, um, <clears throat> or perhaps some of you who just taught our children. Why? That's the question. Why? Clean your room. Why? Can I have a snack? No. Why? <clears throat> Can I watch this? No. Why? <clears throat> Can I go here? No. Why? We always like to ask the question, why? It's the curiosity of every child. Perhaps you were that persistent why questioner as a child that got yourself into some trouble along the way. Uh, no doubt it, uh, uh, it tells of your curiosity, but it's, a, it's an important question. It's not just a, an annoying question. Honestly, if you step back, even for a parent with eager uh, kids asking the question why, when you step back, it's really a beautiful thing to see the curiosity of your children and to see the world through their eyes and the things that they are curious about. Uh, but the question why is really important. In fact, today we're going to see that our passage, verses 11 through 15, give us the why for the passage that we looked at last week, verses 1 through 10. Uh, and if I could uh, re remind you what we looked at last week in Titus 2, 1 through 10 really was a vision or a picture of what it means to make disciples across all stages of life and in all stations of life. We looked at uh, the, uh, the culture of a church that it would be regular for a, an older man and a younger man to get together to discuss life and God's word. For an older woman to pursue a younger woman and say, let's, let's get together and, and pray. Come over while I do things around the house or while I'm running an errand. Or after work, let's get together for a cup of coffee and talk about God's word and talk about how the gospel applies to your life. We, we talked about in Titus 2, 1-10, a culture of discipleship. Uh, that, that permeates all stages of life, all ages, all uh, uh, aspects of life, even stations of life, how, how discipleship should be reflected, uh, as Paul talks about with the slaves in Titus verses, uh, two, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, even the, the lowest station, the lowest rung of the social ladder in the Roman world, Paul says the gospel has implications for how you live. There's, there's work to be done as a follower of Christ, no matter your station in life. And the question is, why, Paul? Why, why should we give that kind of effort and pursue that kind of culture of discipleship as a church? Remember, Paul is writing to Titus, encouraging him uh, to establish these new churches. It's a, a letter to a church plant. And so here's a, a word for us as a church plant to, to pursue this kind of culture of discipleship, which is no doubt a high calling. It's sacrificial. It requires time. It requires opening our lives to one another. It requires allowing God's word to press in and step on our toes and, and push us towards godliness. And why would we give ourselves to that? Verses 11 through 15 tell us that a culture of discipleship is only possible if we're grounded in God's grace. Or if you want to say it another way, a culture of discipleship requires gospel clarity. Why give ourselves to making disciples? The answer is simple. The gospel. The gospel is the reason that we give ourselves to making disciples. And now, the word gospel actually doesn't appear in Titus. So uh, it's somewhat interesting to say that that's uh, kind of the, the overarching answer to why. But what I want us to see today is that though the word gospel doesn't appear here in Titus, Titus is a book rich with gospel truth. 
And it's that gospel truth that I think is essential for us as God's people to understand, uh, to soak in, and for it to transform and change how we live individually and how we live corporately. So I want us to see four truths from Titus 2, 11 through 15 about the gospel. The first is this, is that the gospel is about the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is about the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. We just heard the passage read, but it begins with that short three-letter word, for. This is the hinge. This is, this is answering the why. All that he talked about in verses 1 through 10, this vision for making disciples, this culture of discipleship as we're calling it, is, is grounded in what he says right here in verse 11. For, here's the reason that we pursue all of that. The grace of God has appeared. Paul says, God's grace has shown up. Now, if you, if you read through Paul's letters, you'll notice a, a, a typical rhythm of Paul. And that's, you could say it this way if you're a, an English um, buff, that the, the imperatives of the Scriptures must always be grounded in the indicatives of the Scriptures. So what we're commanded to do, that's the imperatives, to make disciples, is grounded in what God has accomplished for us. That's the grace of God. That's the gospel. And that's what Paul's doing here. Usually, Paul begins with the gospel, and from the gospel flow its implications. A great example of this is the book of Ephesians. For three chapters, Paul just soaks in the gospel and all that God has done for us in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he begins to unpack the implications of the gospel. Well, here he does it opposite. He gives us the, the imperatives of making disciples in all stages and stations of life. And then he grounds it in the indicative of what God has done for us in Christ, which is uh, described as the grace of God appearing. Now, <clears throat> this idea of the grace of God appearing, we can look in uh, 2 Timothy, if you want to flip over uh, one book, flip back one book in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 in 2 Timothy, it shows us that grace is given to us in Jesus and it comes to us through the gospel. Listen to how Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now he mentions God and then he's, then he's going to unpack what God has done for us. He saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. And here's the word, grace And how do we get that grace? Which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is a mystery of mysteries that in God's eternity past, He has promised grace to His people. Uh, And here it says that grace which was promised in eternity past, given to us in eternity past, it's now been manifested. How? Through the, here it is, the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. The gospel is about the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. It refers to God's intervention on our behalf, to who Jesus is and to what he's done. It's not, the point that I want to press home to us today, it's not just an abstract truth that you need to understand cognitively. Grace is a person that you need to know personally. And grace is found in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. And 2 Timothy 1, verse 11, tells us that grace has appeared. And it didn't appear as a thought or an idea, but it appeared as a person. When Jesus came in his incarnation 
and he lived his life in obedience to the Father, in loving service to those around him, in faithful proclamation of the good news that he was the promised Messiah, that, that the, the, the day of judgment was coming for all who wouldn't turn from their sin. And in fact, if they didn't turn and believe in the Son whom the Father had sent, they remained condemned. But if they turned and believed, they would be forgiven and have eternal life. This was his message. And he not only declared that message, but he did the very thing that made that message available to all of us when he laid down his life on the cross. In our place and for our sin, the Lamb of God. Just like we just sang. We just sang the gospel. He did that for us in our place. And then he rose from the dead. And verse, verse 11 and verse 14 go together. See, you see, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Which we'll come back to this statement. How does that salvation come available to all people? Well, verse 14 tells us, <clears throat> he's going to go through and he's going to talk about not only grace appeared, but how grace is training us. We'll come to that in a minute, how we're waiting for Christ to return, the second appearing. But then verse 14, he can't talk about Jesus without pressing home this point one more time. And verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, verse 14 corresponds to verses 11 through 12. 11 through 12 tell us that there's a twofold purpose of God's grace, that God's grace saves and that God's grace trains us in godly living. Well, verse 14 shows us that the grace of God comes through the cross of Christ. The grace of God comes through the cross of Christ. That's, do you see the cross in verse 14? The language is the language of God's self-giving, the giving of himself. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Yes, it was his sacrifice, but it was through the giving of himself in our place as a substitute, as a sacrifice, making atonement, the, the guilt that we, that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve for our sin, the guilt that we bore because we've sinned and rebelled against God. Jesus took it upon himself by giving himself for us. And it says that he gave himself for us for a twofold purpose. You see it there? To redeem us from all lawlessness. And then secondly, it says to purify for himself a people for his own possession. See how it parallels verses 11 through 12. It says he redeemed us from all lawlessness. That's the making salvation available to all people and training us to say no, to, to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In, in the cross of Christ, he redeemed us from our sinful way of life and from the guilt of our sin, changing our identity and our status as being a child of God. And what took place on the cross was an exchange. Jesus got our sin, the judgment that we deserved. And we got his righteousness, the grace that we could have never earned. That's what took place on the cross. That's the grace of God that comes to us through the cross. But not only that, God's grace doesn't only redeem and forgive us and justify us, making us right with God, but God has a purpose and a plan for his people. And that purpose and plan is to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That through the death of Christ we're purified for godly living. This language is actually the language of the new covenant. 
Let me just read to you Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28. Remember, the new covenant is, is what was promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, that, that would come through the, the promised Messiah who would come and, and, and fulfill God's promises. The promises to Abraham, the promises to David are all wrapped up in the new covenant and they're fulfilled in Christ. But, but listen to what he says in Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet says, I will sprinkle God through Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Notice the language of purification. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And notice what happens when he puts his spirit within us. He enables us, causing us to walk in his statutes, being careful to obey his rules. And we shall dwell in the land that he will give to your fathers. And here it is, you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's, that's the language of verse 14. Paul is reflecting on the new covenant and saying through the cross, the new covenant has been fulfilled. When, when Jesus was with the disciples, you remember the last supper, we talk about it as we take the Lord's Supper every month. Jesus took the cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is for the forgiveness of sins. The grace of God comes to us through the cross. Through Jesus giving himself for us in our place. And this grace makes salvation available to all people. As it says in verse 11. Which is good news, isn't it? Makes it available to all people. The best way I know how to describe what all means is that all means all. It means all people. All tribes, all tongues, all nations. doesn't matter your background. I, I, I sometimes I wonder if we, if we really understand how staggering the, the message of the grace of God is. That God's arms are open wide to anyone who would come. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your sin. As a church, we reflect the open arms of Jesus and that we say to everyone everywhere in our community, Come, our doors are open. There's a seat at our table. There's a seat in this house for you to come. Come to Jesus. Come and hear of His grace and His love for you and for me. There's no one who stands outside of the free offer of the gospel. No one who's beyond this salvation that Jesus brings. But it begs the question to all of us, have we received the grace that is only found in Jesus? This, this grace is available to all people, but it's abundantly clear that it's available to all people, but it's a particularly effective and at work in those who believe. God's grace being made available to all people doesn't mean that all people are set. You can go on living your life. God loves you. Just keep on doing what you're doing. No, he says, come to me. No matter where you're at, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Listen, if you get close enough to Jesus, you can't stay the same. If you experience His grace, nothing remains the same. Oh, it doesn't happen in a flash. But to all who believe, God's grace transforms. That's what Paul's talking about here. As he calls us to discipleship, he says, remember, this is grounded in the grace of God. Discipleship's a calling of what God's called us to do as his people, but we can't carry out that calling apart from his grace. 
And that grace is only available to us in Jesus. And that grace is meant to work itself out in our life. And that's what brings us to the second point. That the gospel trains us in godly living. You know, I, I, I can't help but think about this as uh, my... Uh, at different stages of my life as I've moved, you know, you uh, kind of are going through your stuff and you come across old pictures or uh, the stuff that you put in the corner in that closet that you don't want to deal with. Well, when you move, you have to figure out whether or not you're going to keep it or not, you know. Uh, the stuff that you're like, oh, I'm going to keep it for now, but, uh, you know, and four more years, whenever it's time to move or whatever, you have to make the decision again and you're going through your stuff. And it's kind of nostalgic to go through your stuff. I just uh, received some things from... Um, uh, that were belonged to my dad when he passed away, and I was they were mailed to me uh, from some other family back in Arkansas, and uh, there were a bunch of records and eight tracks and cassette tapes and a bunch of stuff that my my dad had, and um, <clears throat> I was just going through, and it's just kind of nostalgic to look at all of it, you know. And as amazing as it was, I looked through it all, and I said to Emily, "Look at this, my dad loved this. I remember listening to this in the car with my dad." But then I kind of pack, packed it back up in the box and I put it in in the storage room. And, and it's, it's there, and I no doubt it's meaningful to me. But I, I want you to understand the gospel isn't just meant to be nostalgic to us. It, it'd be a better uh, description to think about the background that's on, uh, you know, the phone, on your phone, that picture that's there. That, that background uh, is, is what's kind of always there when you pick up your phone. It's there reminding you of whatever it is, a, a fun memory, a special person, some special quote. The gospel is meant to be like the background on our phones, not just a nostalgic uh, item that we have from our past that we pull out every so often that gives us good feelings and then we put back away until another time. The gospel is to permeate our life. And it says that the gospel not only makes salvation available to all people, but verse 12 says that the gospel, same flowing from this idea, what the grace of God does, it has a twofold purpose, bringing salvation to all people, but then training us, training us in godly living. And this, this has two implications here. That because of the grace of God, we have a new power. Not like a superpower, but it is kind of a cool power when you think about it. You see, the new power is that before the grace of God entered into our life, we were like robots. And our default mode was ungodliness and worldly passions. We were enslaved to sin. We couldn't help but sin. Even when we didn't know we were sinning, often we were sinning because God wasn't first place in our life. And now that the grace of God has come, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. One, one translation says it this way, that it's teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So grace works through us what Christ has done for us is what Paul is saying, that there's this new power that we're free from the guilt of sin. That's, that's what it means to be forgiven, that you're no longer guilty. That's justification. The language of justification is that we're made right with God, free from the guilt of sin. What verse 12 is talking about is sanctification. Not sanctification by your own works, but sanctification by grace. And sanctification is growing in godliness, growing to be more like Christ. And that sanctification means that we are free from the power of sin. It doesn't mean that we will always choose to say no to our sin. But it means that now we can. Now we're not enslaved to our sin anymore. The language of Peter is striking to me. 
as a believer, when you go back to your sin, you're like a dog returning to its vomit. I know that we haven't eaten dinner yet, but I know that doesn't prepare you well for dinner. But isn't that a striking image? We're free from sin. So often we're pulled to go back to it. And what the grace of God tells us is that we have a new power. We used to be unable to say no to sin, but now by God's grace we can. We can deny the things that don't reflect God's character and go against His word. We can say no to the passions that control this world, like possessions and pleasure and power. Those things don't have to define us anymore. I love uh, uh, last week as I was listening and reflecting on Titus 2, Kristen Anyabwile at the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference, I think two years ago, her talk was entitled, Being Titus 2 Disciples in a Romans 1 World. And I think a very fitting image here as we think about the grace of God. Romans 1 talks about how God's wrath is coming against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth who are unwilling to acknowledge God for who He is and thinking themselves wives, they prove themselves to be fools because they go and they exchange the, the created thing for the Creator. They, they worship the, the things that God has made rather than the Maker. They exchange what God has made us for for the things that, that go against His design and His purposes. And it's the grace of God that helps us live in a Romans 1 world. We are in a Romans 1 world. We've been in a Romans 1 world since Genesis 3. I apologize for all the scripture references to keep you, uh, you know, flowing here. From the fall, it's been Romans 1, right? Uh, that's where we're at. And he's calling us to live as his disciples, and that's only possible through the grace of God, which gives us a new power. But we also have a new purpose. And that purpose, we see, is to live. Did you love that? We talked about this last week when we... Uh, looked at Romans uh, 6, maybe it was two weeks ago, but we've died to our old way of life, to sin, and we've been made alive. The new purpose that the grace of God brings is to really live. So before, before we experienced the grace of God, we were living but dead. That's what Ephesians 2 says, 1 through 3, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. Hearts pumping, oxygen flowing, but dead to God, dead in sin. But now, because of God's grace, we're alive. And the way we live is defined by a new, uh, new set of priorities, self-control, that all-encompassing picture of discipleship, of saying no to our own passions and desires, denying self and following Christ. And then uh, uprightness, which references our relationship with others, loving and serving others. And then uh, an upward dimension in which we, we worship God. We live godly lives, as it says in verse 12. In this present age, this is our purpose. The gospel is interested in changing us. And it's only the gospel that can change us. If you try to live the Christian life without the grace of God, that will be legalism. If you like the grace of God, but you dismiss the commands of God... That's relativism. That's choosing to go your own way, taking for granted and presuming against God and His grace. Saying, yo, yeah, I'm grateful that God's good and gracious, but I'm going to go do me. I'm going to go live my way. Neither of those are what God has called us to. It's the gospel, as Tim Keller articulates it, that charts the third way, that says no to legalism, the Christian life without grace, 
No to relativism, presuming upon the grace of God and living however you please, according to your own passions and desires. And yes to the gospel, which saves us by grace through faith in Christ and trains us to live with a new power, free from the power of sin and a new purpose to truly live to God. That's what he's calling us to. So, if the grace of God is to, is to train us in godly living, how does that work? Well, the best way I can describe it is that we need to soak in the gospel. Maybe if you're an action item person that doesn't satisfy you fully, you want maybe more, but, but let me assure you that once, once you really dive into this, you'll see that this is more than enough. And it's foundational to how we live the Christian life. We must let the gospel train us. It's Keller who also says, Tim Keller, that we must let the gospel argue with us. We must let the gospel sink down deeply until it changes our views and our motives. It changes the way we think. That's what trains, that's how the grace of God trains us, is that we wrestle with gospel truth until it changes us. You've got a desire to sin? Reflect on the gospel until that desire seems as worthless as it really is. You, want to, you feel called to serve, but the, the desire and the, the want to to do it isn't really there. Think about the grace of God given to us in Christ until it compels you to serve freely. I'm not saying it's magic. I'm saying it's the call of the Christian life to soak in the gospel. Because the grace of God doesn't just save. The grace of God trains. The, the language of training is similar to a parent who raises a child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That it's training us to uh, training a child to, to go in the way of Christ. In a similar way, when we soak in the gospel, it's, it's doing that kind of training. It's keeping us on track. It's pointing us in the right directions. It's turning us away from what's harmful to us and what's good for us. How do you soak in the gospel? Let me encourage you in these three ways. Read scripture to find the truths of the gospel. When you read God's word, look for passages like Titus 2, 11-14, which give us gospel truth. To soak in. Recite the truths of the gospel to yourself on a regular basis. We, we did this in our small group this week as Victor led our discussion. We were just reflecting on gospel truths. Uh, the, the kind of catechizing our, our minds and our hearts to reflect on the gospel. We need to do that regularly, personally. And, and the third point is actually describing what I just said. Uh, and Jeff Vanderstelt, in a book called Gospel Fluency, brings this out. He says, rehearse the truths of the gospel in community with other believers. And it's actually one of the most helpful things. If you want to talk to those who don't yet trust Christ and know Christ about the gospel, well, a great way to start is to talk about the gospel with those who do know Christ and do trust Him. Allow that to be a part of the conversation so that it trains us, literally, uh, to, to be ready to talk about the gospel to ourselves in the moments that we need it, as well as to others. As I thought about this, I couldn't help but come back to um, a book called Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. I, I think this book was birthed out of this pastor's desire to have a resource to help himself remember the gospel. It's the only book the guy's ever written, uh, from what I can tell. Um, but hey, when you, go, when you go big or go home, like this guy describes it, he nails it with the Gospel Primer. It's a great resource I would commend to all of you. I think it's like eight bucks and it's 80 pages. But it's not really a book that you read like other books. It's more of a resource which gives you like gospel nuggets to reflect on. 
he kind of does a, a gospel by, by prose, which he writes out kind of like 40-something statements that are true of the gospel and scriptures that, that connect to those statements. And then he has a, a gospel by poetry where he uh, is reflecting on those gospel truths and kind of putting it to, uh, to, to poems that, that help stir our hearts to, to worship God. And I want to I read to you the summary, uh, his gospel prose summary. It's a little longer than I would typically read, and so you don't fall asleep as I read it. I put it up on the screens for you to, to, to follow along with me. But, but here's, here's my point. As I read this, the reason I'm going to take five minutes now to do this is because I'm convinced that there's nothing more vital to our growth in the Christian life than for us to soak deeper and deeper in the gospel. It's what we need. It's what we need to grow personally as Christians. It's what we need to advance the gospel and the mission of God. It's what we need to restore broken relationships. It's what we need to fight discouragement. It's what we need to attack the temptations towards sin. It's, it's what we need to put death put to death sin in our lives. It's what we need to aspire to, uh, to obedience to God. It's what we need when our, our, our hearts and our desires for God don't match what we know we should do for God. That when the, when the desire for God isn't there, it's these gospel truths that we need to stir up our hearts towards God. So read along with me as we reflect and soak in the gospel for a few moments. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He's also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from His loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to Him and to His goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent on Him in whom I live and move and have my being. The wonderful God is this, this wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in the whole universe. He has created me with the intention that I might glorify Him by finding my soul's delight in Him and by living in joyful obedience to Him in all my ways. And yet, I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to Him and humbly submitting to His rule over my life, I've rebelled against Him. I've actually sought to exalt myself above Him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I've broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I've shown myself to be a fool, because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to everlasting, the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as far as myself, apart from Christ, I'm bound by the guilt of my sin, and I'm bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I am utterly deserving and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do God did. And in doing it, he did it all. Sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loved me so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son. 
even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. No one could ever love me or you more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I've ever or will ever commit throughout my life. God then exalted Christ to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Now, when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, for me some 19 years ago, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave me of all my sins, past, present, and future. He made me a child, his child, adopting me into his family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, who tenderly communicates with my spirit that I am indeed a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. I'm not even done yet. This is good news. This is the gospel of the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. In saving me, God freed me from, the slavery, from slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again, for sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. And being justified in Christ, I have peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated, completely satisfied by Jesus who bore it on himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and the deepest affection for me. And this love is without admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor. This is true of you as a child of God. Working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me, even through trials, even through pandemics. Because I'm a justified one, he subjects every trial and forces it to do good unto me, as he sees fit. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status. When I sin, God feels no wrath against me in his heart. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. He longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me his gracious and forgiving love that's been in his heart all along. God doesn't require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he's already forgiven me. And when I come to him to confess my sins, he runs to me, as it were, like the the father of the prodigal son and repeatedly embraces and kisses me even before I get the words of my confession out of my mouth. He stands with open arms, not a pointed finger. God does, not, God does see my sins, and he's grieved by my sins. His grief comes partly from the fact that in the moment of my sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of his love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life, but he does so because he is for me, and he loves me, and he disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this, and neither do any of you, even on our best days. But this is our salvation. Herein we stand. Thank you, Jesus. That's the grace of God to us in Jesus, and it's that grace that we must soak in these gospel truths until it gives us new affections for God. 
new desires to please Him, new strength to say no to sin, new eagerness to pursue godliness. Are you soaking in the gospel? Perhaps, like myself, you need fresh encouragement to return to the gospel. It's not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. Come back to the gospel and soak in the gospel because it trains us in godly living. There's no strategy here that I'm giving you for how to live a godly life other than to say, never get over the gospel. And if you never get over the gospel, you will will always have motivation, power, and strength to pursue the life of godliness that God is calling you to, and that God is calling me to. And we soak in the gospel. We not only are trained in godly living, but the third point, we have produced within us a longing for Jesus' second coming. Titus 2.13. It's actually parallel. The grace of God trains us, and then 13 is on that same level. As it trains us, we also, it's teaching us to wait. To wait for the appearing of our blessed hope, as it says in verse 13. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Perhaps one of the greatest statements, clearest statements of Jesus' deity in the entire New Testament. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But this time it's not talking about his first appearing, but it's talking about his second appearing. In his first appearing, he he brought the grace of God that brings salvation to all people. In his second appearing, he's bringing the glory of God for us to enjoy and experience forever. It's called the blessed hope, a happy hope. Hope is the confident expectation of what is ours. When Christ returns, we'll finally experience what it means not only to be free from the guilt of sin, justification, free from the power of sin, sanctification, but free, praise God, from the presence of sin, which is glorification. No more indwelling sin that trips us up, that ensnares us free from the presence of sin and then free to enjoy the glory of God which we are made for. We not only trust in the saving God in Christ, but we also have the future hope of His glory to be revealed to us. And the Bible talks often about this expectation, this waiting, this looking for, this anticipation of His return. We won't read all of them, but 1 John talks about how when He appears referencing a second coming that will be like him oh we don't know what will happen to us but one thing we do know is we'll be like him and that's all we could ever ask but hebrews 9 as the author of hebrews is talking about when jesus comes back uh, he's going to come back not to uh, in his first coming he came to bear the sins of many but he'll appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those notice this who are eagerly waiting for him the, the core, a core description of a Christian is one who is waiting on Jesus. Not only one who has been saved by grace, but one who is waiting for his return. And Paul in 2 Timothy, perhaps his last letter that he wrote, as he reflects on his life, he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. But not only will Paul be able to receive that crown, but everyone who loves his appearing will be in line for that crown too. 
as I, as I reflected on this passage, I just kept asking myself, am I eagerly awaiting Jesus' return? Are you eagerly awaiting Jesus' return? Like, whatever your plans are for tomorrow or the next year or your career or your life or your family, do you believe that when Jesus comes back, it'll be way better than anything that you've got planned for the rest of your life? Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm so eager for what I've got in store, for my plans and my desires. Oh, I don't literally want it more, I think, than than Jesus coming back. But sometimes that loving his appearing, that eager anticipation, isn't always a true description for me. And this passage convicts me. Are Are you eagerly waiting for his return? Not like a passive waiting, but an active waiting. A while back, Emily was out of town and... Uh, it was right around Christmas. She actually was out of town for her grandmother's funeral. And um, our Christmas tree that we bought uh, like two weeks prior from Lowe's, um, we didn't cut the bottom of it. And like within two weeks, like it looked like the Grinch's Christmas tree. Like the, the limbs were hanging down, like ornaments were falling off onto the floor. And we had decided that uh, it's Christmas in a pandemic and we can't have a dead tree. So we're going to have to take this one down and get a new one. Um, and I was determined uh, to, to go get a new tree, uh, to put the lights on it, uh, you know, put the lights up outside while te- taking care of our three children um, and keeping them alive and feeding them. And, you know, I think I bathed them at least once, um, clothing them, uh, those kind of things, you know. Um, and it required us to go to multiple places to get all these things. But I was determined to do it. <clears throat> and I think sometimes when we think about waiting, we, we think passively waiting right? Just kind of hanging out, waiting till uh, something happens. But there's a, an active type of waiting when you're anticipating someone's return and you're active in preparing for their return. So the, the first day she was gone, we went, we took down the lights and took down the ornaments and we went and got the new tree and we put it up and we just left it there. And then the next day we, we put the lights on it. And that was actually, she was only gone two days. I don't think I could have made it longer. Um, but she came back uh, at the end of that day. We had church on Sunday morning and Amelia was making a note to put on the door to welcome mom home. We were trying to wrap the light on the, the lights on the tree outside so we could get it done and get the lights done on the inside. Also, we could welcome her home, awaiting her return, actively preparing. That's the, that's the description of of how we wait for Jesus' second appearing. Active in pursuit of Him and preparation for Him. And it's this waiting, when Christ returns, the glory that will be ours reminds us that the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship, is worth it. I think we need that reminder. The way of following Christ is the way of self-denial. The future hope that awaits us tells us that all our dying to self is worth it. All the putting away worldly passions. Every time it seems like everybody else is getting ahead and enjoying the pleasures of this life and you're choosing to say no out of obedience to Christ. All of it's worth it. All the lingering in prayer even when your heart doesn't feel it. The commitment to the church, the body of Christ. The discipline to say no to temptation and walk in self-control. The feeling like an exile as we pass through life in this world. The suffering for the sake of Christ. All of it's worth it because of the glory that's to be ours when Christ returns. The gospel creates in us 
a longing for Jesus' return that sustains us as we grow in godliness in the present age. Here's what our passage does. Ultimately, it gives us a, a look back at the grace of God found in Jesus. That's the foundation of our discipleship. And then it teaches us to look ahead to the glory that will be ours, that sustains us and encourages us in our pursuit of godliness in the present age. And that's what we need. Grounded in grace, waiting for glory, growing in grace in the present. That's what he's called us to. In verse 15, Paul sums it up. He says, this gospel must be proclaimed faithfully and unashamedly. And I don't want to press long on this point, but, but sometimes as Christ lingers, it's easy for us to think that maybe there's something else that we need to do. Maybe there's something we're missing. Maybe there's something else we need to teach to be more appealing to the present culture. Maybe there's some other thing that we, we need to do that, that's going to, to maybe connect. And, and no doubt we should seek to be faithful to share the gospel in, the, in a way that connects with the people in our time. But there is no other gospel that we must share. There is no better gospel that we must share. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, we must not be ashamed of this gospel. We must be faithful to this gospel. Let no one disregard you, he says to Titus. The task you have of establishing the church in Crete is no small order. But the resources you have are more than sufficient. The gospel of the grace of God in Jesus. So where does this leave us as a church as we think about the gospel and discipleship? Three points to close us out. Discipleship begins with the gospel. You can't live the Christian life without experiencing, first and foremost, the grace of God through faith in Jesus. That's what starts us on the road to discipleship, to growing and knowing Christ. And then discipleship is dependent on the gospel. Discipleship isn't our work that, that, uh, that we do, that, that God watches, but discipleship is dependent on the gospel, motivated by, sustained by, upheld by the grace of God that's in Jesus. And then ultimately, discipleship furthers the gospel. You remember last week in verses 5 and 8 and 10, Paul was concerned about how the gospel was put on display through our lives. Here we're reminded that when, we, uh, when we're anchored in the gospel and we're following Christ, God is using that to further the gospel being made known to all people. So, <clears throat> as Natalie and Rebecca come to close us in worship, two questions I have for us as we respond in worship now. Is have you experienced God's grace for yourself? Do you know God's grace, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom that comes from the power of sin, being made alive to God, where you put your trust in Him? If you don't, the response today is to trust Him. The grace that He offers is a grace for you to receive by faith. Put your trust in Him. Confess your sin and say, I need your forgiveness. I trust that you died for me and rose again. I give my life to you and experience His grace for yourself. But, but to, to everyone who has experienced God's grace, I have to ask you, are you allowing God's grace to shape your life right now? Is there sin that you need to confess? Is there a burden you're bearing that you need to bring to God? A discouragement that you're facing, that you've been handling in your own strength, in your own wisdom? Is there a loss of zeal or passion for God? Maybe you sense that fading longing for Christ's return. Is there an indifference to Jesus' return and to His commands? 
The invitation is the same in both cases. The gospel holds out God's grace to you today. Will you receive it? Will you live by it? A culture of discipleship requires gospel clarity. Let's pray.